Welcome to To Be Continued, a Stonecroft Symposium podcast. In today's episode, I speak with Benny Michaud, Christine Toulouse, and Larissa DeRosier about beading, quill work, indigeneity, and weaving into community and history through your own archival productions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a second season of TBC. Um, you know, it's interesting today, we're actually trying something new, at least for me, which is we're recording on Zencaster, which is our audio podcast software, but we're also joining in via video Zoom on a second device. So it's kind of really nice to be able to see people's faces while we're also engaging in conversations. I feel like we can't say the P word like pandemic without someone wanting to be like, and no more, we're done. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we are amidst a global pandemic and it feels more pressing than ever before to hear about stories that bring us to reexamine our shared existence through storytelling. So this podcast series is an extension of To Be Continued Troubling the Queer Archive, which is an art exhibit that's taking place between September and May 2021 at Carleton University Art Gallery. The show and today's conversations both take place on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory. The intention of this show is to amplify, honor, and celebrate the realities of QT BIPOC folks. It's been an ongoing process to think through the ways universities and galleries and our work within them are either complicit in sustaining existing power structures or are deployed to creatively disarticulate them, especially when we think to the archives that these spaces are implicated and also producing towards in terms of nation-making projects. So as such, this show is specifically designed to think through what intervening or interrupting these processes can look like. Today, I'm really stoked to hear about how creative productions through beadwork and quill work, and we'll have a little bit more chat of what makes them so distinct, um, can trace lineages through the texture and tangibility of a work of art. What does it mean to weave yourself into community and history through your own archival production? My name is Anna Shawhawk, and I, along with Cara Tierney, are the co-curators of To Be Continued. This show comes out of a desire to build and share stories from the community so as to reorient our relationship to land, space, and place. How do we envision history? How do we negotiate our communities into the center when oftentimes the normative stories do not reflect us so as readily? Art and creative productions have played their own role in helping me unmake my understanding of being a refugee in Indigenous territories, Arts inform me about concurrent alternate genealogies of community in the context of what is currently Canada. While some made me pause and reflect on unpacking the malevolent and destructive nature of settler colonial violence, others made me long for my own histories to know of my families as they experienced a very different genealogy and association to violence in other geographies. So the kinds of access we have to information whose stories become centralized as neutral and the archives we think hold an accurate telling of disparate and diverse communities all play a role in how we come to make sense of ourselves and by virtue of that, how we're conditioned to not see past the center. Today, we're gonna to talk about community, our practices, indigeneity, and the work each of you are doing to build alternate archives. I'm interested to hear you reflect and remember moments that have significantly shaped your own entry point into beading and quill work. Through our conversations, I'm hoping that our audience will also reflect and reconsider the ways people produce themselves into the archives that are not necessarily the archive that we imagine in, you know, in concrete and cement encased buildings with artifacts that are tied to the language of quote unquote official archives. With that said, I'm going to ask each of you to introduce 
and tell us a bit about who you are and how you are. Benny, can I ask you to go first? Sure. Tanchik Yoao. My name is Benny Misho. My Michif name is which means medicine person from the south. I am a Michif person. Uh, my family is originally from St. Boniface in Winnipeg, but I've been living in Ontario and other places, other territories, in Algonquin territory for the last 11 years now. Christine? Hi, I'm Christine Toulouse. I am Ojibwe and Algonquin uh, with family from Sagamuk, Anishinaabek, and Kitagan Zibi. I was born and raised in Ottawa, spent a little bit time away about from when I was 25 to 30, but back in Ottawa and yeah, just living and surviving and trying to thrive. <laughs> Relatable. Larissa. <laughs> I'm Larissa DeRoge. My spirit name, well, I have two. Nawagijiguk, Beba Makamaguk, Nindijnikaz. I'm from Kuchiching First Nation, but I was I was born in Fort Francis, raised in Thunder Bay and Winnipeg. And then my mom and I moved to Fort Francis for a decade and a half, maybe. And I've been in Ottawa for school at Carleton for, oh my God, like six or seven years now, which is really wild to me. Yeah, I'm taking a bit of a break from school. I'm going to go back and finish my degree. But yeah, just I'm living in Nepean, beating and chilling with my dog and my partner. It sounds pretty awesome. Fur baby love is so important. Oh my God, it saved me from this. <laughs> Whatever this is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fascinating, but also not so surprising that like, you know, Carlton acts as the sort of meeting point for so many of us. In fact, that was my entry point to how I met each of you at some point or another over the last like, what, five, six, seven years? Yeah. Yeah, Carlton was great for, for meeting people. Lots of events. Miss them. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. 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 You know, lots of people time. It's <laughs> yeah. so much. Oh, my gosh. I think my deep hope is once, you know, whatever the normal is post pandemic or in pandemic is just to throw like hugging parties. Like I miss hugging people. <laughs> 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 that's so true <laughs> human contact <laughs> so true I was once in Seattle, Washington and there was a person standing on the corner outside of Starbucks with a sign that said free hugs and I don't think I've had a more exciting afternoon since because <laughs> I literally just spent the afternoon on that corner shopping and then going out for my free hug and then shopping and then going out for my free hug. Um, so each of you has signaled your entry point into Ottawa. To go back to some of those earlier years of like figuring out community and figuring out like where in the landscape you make family, like what did that look like for each of you? 
maybe I ask Larissa to go first if you're comfortable. Sure, yeah. Um, I moved here. My good friend in high school, Mallory, she came to Carleton a year before I did. I went back to high school for the victory lap, (laughs) which is what they call it. And yeah, I really didn't know where I fit, I guess, which program I should be in, especially looking all across Canada. I wanted something to kind of harness my my music and what I wanted to do. And Carlton was really the only place I found that I had a little bit more freedom. So um, yeah, I moved here knowing like one person and we and we lived together, which was super, super important, I guess, for the first few years. Um, and in my program, far as I can remember, for about four years, I was the only Native person that I guess outwardly identified as Native. And, you know, it's something I sing about in my music, you know, my identity and just a lot of different things about, I guess, Indigenous life and well, specifically my Ojibwe, you know, life as a, you know, Ojibwe person. And yeah, it was, it was pretty isolating because I never really knew what people were thinking or how they felt about me. And, you know, it's not like I received any harassment or discrimination really but you know I would bring things up like I remember when walking with our sisters was at QA like I mentioned in my class that was mandatory for everyone you know go go see this this show this installation this you know what (laughs) you know like what do you even call it it's so powerful and like this is an issue that's really being highlighted in you know the news and just you know across Canada right now like this is really important um and I I think a couple people went, but it was just like radio silence when I brought that up in class. So it was just, you know, as much as I felt at home in in the music program, being a musician, it was very hard for me to connect until I started hanging out in Ojikwanong a little bit more, until I started taking Indigenous studies classes for my minors. So that definitely helped to create some community and, you know, there was you know, definitely like beating little workshops in Ojikwanong and, you know, I take part in stuff. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, really spending more time in Ojik and uh, taking those Indigenous studies classes really helped to expand <laughs> and feel more at home in Ottawa, especially because a lot of students were, you know, like me and trying to find their way. They weren't from here and didn't really know a lot of people. So yeah, I'm really grateful for just that whole time, it was around like 2017 through like 2018, where I really found, you know, my crew and just like my vibe, like it was, it was, yeah, I I remember it fondly. (laughs) Larissa, can you tell us a little bit more about like what Ojikwanong is for audience members who might not know? Right. So Ojikwanong is the Indigenous Student Center. Is that Am I saying that correctly? Indigenous Students Center um, at Carleton University. Um, there are there's a lot that goes on there. Um, there are service people there to help you and guide you. And that's well, I don't know, actually, Benny. I'm not entirely sure when we first first met, but I remember you <laughs> and being very friendly in there. And yeah, just, just feeling, you know, very, very comfortable and, you know, not so kind of uptight and, 
you know, professional. It was just like, okay, this is a place where I can come and I can stick my tongue out when I talk or I can point with my lips and, you know, and I can also study. <laughs> you know, like it's, I don't have to, I don't have to hide, you know, <laughs> hide who I am. So, um, yeah, and there's like lots of workshops like there's so much programming that goes on every single week and there are computers and, you know, a little like study room. So yeah, there's a lot that goes on there. Awesome. Thank you yeah. for explaining that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it acts as such a community hub inside Carleton where it can also feel at times like alienating. You don't necessarily know how to broker in relationships, especially if you don't have an already established friend baseline. Yeah. When I had said earlier that uh, Carlton was a great place to meet people, I didn't mean like in classes because that was super hard for me, but I met in Ojukwanam. Like that was definitely where I met most of the community and yeah, really felt at home. And just like Clarissa said, like felt comfortable being myself and just felt immediately welcome. Benny was a huge part of that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Benny, it's Benny adoration time. Do you want to tell us? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit, Benny, about how you come to be central in Ojikwanon and like uh, support for a lot of Indigenous folks at Carlton? Sure. So I guess I could kind of start at the beginning, for me anyway. Um, so I spent a lot of my growing up outside of my traditional territory. So the my family's traditional territory was really in the Winnipeg area and the Capel Valley area in Saskatchewan. So territories that are shared uh, with the Cree and the Soto. My mom joined the military when she was very young to escape violence in the home. And so I spent a lot of my time growing up uh, away from my extended family, which is kind of an unusual experience for the rest of my, my Métis relatives. But what has really sustained me in my life is forming strong community connections in, in the urban spaces that I've been living in. And the first time I came to Ottawa was 20 years ago when I had been accepted as a student to come to Carleton University. and when my parents dropped me off about a week before classes started, it was the first time that anybody in my family had ever stepped onto a post-secondary institution campus of any kind. I was the first person in my family to go to college or to go to university. Terrifying experience because there was nobody that I felt I could turn to to ask all kinds of questions about what it was I should be expecting in terms of what I was about to experience. The thing that really helped me to navigate university was the community that I found in the Indigenous Student Centre, which at the time was this really small little room tucked away in the tunnels. And it was this crowded little space that could fit about oh I think about 10 people and we all knew each other very very well in fact we all still know each other really really well <laughs> the people who were students at that time and being a student at Carleton and having access 
to the support that I found in that student center, I think gave me a real appreciation for um, how important that kind of community is. And then I went on and I was a student at two other universities um, before I went out into the work world. And I somehow made my way back to Carleton. And I am now in this position where my role is to support Indigenous students. And I truly feel passionate in the work that I do around advocating for students and ensuring that students have the support that they need because I know how deeply alienating an experience it can be trying to be successful in an environment that is not built for us, was never intended to meet our needs as Indigenous people. So I just think the community that we've been able to build and foster and nurture through spaces like Ojikwanong are so important. And I've had the opportunity to meet so many amazing people from all over the place. It's, it's both frustrating when the space isn't already there, but then when you do create the space where folks are able to access and like know that they're not alone, that they're not in this process of like having to build community, but also feel grounded enough to pursue educational like pathways. Like it's, school is hard. Universities make it that much more like difficult and, and solitary of a process. And then when there's when there isn't necessarily like a ready-made uh, community to enter into, it can be so, so lonely. Um, and I think it's magical, incredibly important work. I didn't know about this tunnel room at Carleton, Benny. Larissa, like... <laughs> <laughs> did you I, know? I didn't know. Well, actually, no, I did. I don't know where in the tunnels it was, but I remember hearing about just this, like this little room on the side of the tunnels. And oh, actually, no, I do know where it is. It's up that big hill in the tunnels, right? Yeah. Somebody pointed it out to me and I was like, wow, we are so lucky. I was going to say, because school is so hard. <laughs> and I, I learned and yeah, like my regular music classes, which were really demanding, but especially in my Indigenous studies classes and just, you know, like learning more about my identity and reflecting and things. Um, I went through some really tough classes and, you know, they're, oh, it was like, okay, I'm not going to go cry in the bathroom. And Ojikwanong was frankly a place where I could just go there and cry. Like there were so many throughout the years, there were so many instances where I was able to go in the smudge room and, you know, lock the door because I'm smudging and bawling like ugly crying because it was like, you know, I don't feel like I can speak up in class. If I felt like if I brought, you know, this issue to my professors, it would be dismissed. And, you know, I was lucky to, you know, be able to do that and, you know, be responded to well but you know that was like my first point of contact when things went downhill when I went through you know my breakups and just you know family stuff it really was a safe place to run to you know it was so important for me to have that space even when I was living on campus I would I would run there you know have a smudge <laughs> yeah yeah, I think like if when we're thinking about the knowledges that we gain access to through educational institutions, it often comes at the price of like having to hear, listen, and then be re-traumatized about histories of like violence towards Indigenous Black POC communities, right? 
as so much of the learning is predicated on, I'm going to call it trauma porn, but like, it feels like, you know, who is that content really engineered towards how, and how does it make space for softness, joy, and like celebrating also like accomplishments in lives and not coming always from the point of deficit. And I think like when we don't have the opportunity to find that safe haven to go and actually be nurtured and taken care of, which the sort of like dominant educational institutions don't really produce an environment that's like care focused, I'll right? I'll tell you, that's the thing about that's so special about Ojikwanong too, is that there's so much laughter. It's one yeah. of those places, and this is always the way it is where you get Indigenous people gathering together. There is comfort in knowing that as diverse as we are, and as diverse as our experiences are, our experiences to a great extent are still shared. And so there's safety in that. We can rely on that, that we understand one another in a way that other people don't understand us. And we need more of those places to come together and be able to relax and enjoy each other's company, knowing that we can just be ourselves. And that's everybody, student, staff, faculty, community member, elder, youth, everybody needs spaces like that. Mm -hmm. You know, Benny, one of my earliest memory of you is um, we were at some event and I look over and you're sitting at a table and um, you're beating. Um, there's, there's a room full of people uh, and some sort of a panel happening. And I really didn't focus on any of that. I was too busy looking at you beating. Um, and, uh, and I just, I find that moment so beautiful and also like such a powerful intervention because amongst all the bureaucratic processes at play, there's Benny. <laughs> Um, and you know, you full on taking over the table <laughs> with all of the things and you're just like, not even looking at anything. You're just, <laughs> I mean, beadwork can be a very intentional thing. I used to go to a lot of government consultations on behalf of my community. And there were certain meetings that I would absolutely pack my beadwork very intentionally for many different purposes, you know, whether it was to kind of center myself in conversations that I knew would be ultimately very difficult. Yeah, in other ways that probably, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great entry point to talk about each of your practices. Like you've all cultivated very beautiful, strong, multi-pronged. I mean, Larissa, you sing, you tell stories, you write music, you, you know, um, like I would really love for each of you to sort of share with us in whatever degree how you came to to practice, whether it be beadwork, and then um, Christine, perhaps you could talk a bit more about quill work. Um, but Larissa, do you want to go first? Sure. So I, I guess this kind of starts with my mom because she has been beading for uh, well, she's not so much active anymore, but she's always been the artistic type. She was the one that you know inspired me to start playing music and guitar and singing and writing and very artistic person. So she's definitely been um, a focal point. Um, yeah. So she's definitely, you know, somebody that, you know, encouraged me and I've always admired her for it. I first learned actually how to bead from my cousin Fawn though, Fawn Mashaki out of Thunder Bay. <laughs> she moved to Fort Francis and I went over to visit at her place and she was like, yeah, let's just like learn how to, I'm going to teach you how to do some beading. And she 
we drew up a little floral design and she gave me some beads and it kept me busy for quite a few months. I still have that piece actually. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it really is honestly amazing to see how far I have come. I, that, so that was, I was probably about 14. So like 2007 or eight or something, <laughs> something around there. And then in university, in my second year, my mom drove me from, you know, Fort Francis to Ottawa and we stopped. I don't remember uh, exactly where it is on the way, but we stopped at iBead. It's a big bead store um, on the way to Ottawa. I know that store. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. Love it. Yes. Oh, it's like a playground in there. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you buy all the things? (laughs) Yes. I'm like, I I saved up for nothing because I'm going to go back to Ottawa with no money. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I got all of my like starting things. Like, you know, I got all like the beading felt and, you know, good scissors and the earring fixings and just yeah so so many beads because there's so many different kinds in there and yeah it was so exciting it (laughs) actually I flew home and brought my beading with me and all my beads ended up in one big like bead soup because I bought the wrong container so that was like truly horrible but I I didn't let it stop me I I think I still have those at home and they're still unsorted but my mom you know she helped me out with that (laughs) but yeah that was like my first time living alone in in well not alone in an apartment I was living with my best friend Mallory and yeah I just like learned how to start making earrings more of the embroidery style beading um and then I started working for the indigenous mentors um indigenous high school mentors with Carlton and I was like well I mean I don't really remember a whole lot on how to do it but like I'm sure that we can you know figure figure out some little projects and I brought you know beating into my little practice with those those students and it was a lot of fun we did like Yu-Gi-Oh medallions and whatever they wanted like it was a lot of fun (laughs) yeah and then I started my beating Instagram May 2018 I think June 2018 and yeah, it's it's just grown from there and I've just learned so many so many different things to, you know, grow and expand my practice. Larissa, do you want to share your Insta handle for your sure. beading? Uh it's Bengish at Big Bengishimon Beadwork. B-A-N-G-I-S-H I M O N Beadwork. I like I just like made you take a test. I, I was like, <laughs> do I know how to spell an Ojibwe? I'm, I'm, let's hope. <laughs> yeah, Bengishimon means sunset or like it is sunset, just refers to sunset. And like, I'm, I'm just so in, in love with sunset. So I was like, yeah, this, this is a good reflection of myself. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Christine, can you share a bit about like, I know you specifically work with like quill work. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference between quill work and beadwork and like why it's important to distinguish them? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, beadwork is so hard. (laughs) I don't know how you ladies do it at all, but I tried learning so many years ago because I was like, oh, I want a hobby and I want to learn and I want to take part in my culture and I want to, you know, like I see everyone else doing this craft. It should be easy. It should be a great creative outlet. Anyways, it was the most frustrating thing on this planet. I snapped so many beading needles. I don't even know how. 
Um, anyways, the person who was teaching me, Ashley, she's from Kittigan ZB and she was just like, I don't know how you're doing this, but it's just like, it's impossible watching you. So I'm pretty sure you're just not going to be a beater. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> I <laughs> retired from that sport for a very long time. I tried to pick it up again when I was working at Ojequinong as the, um, I was kind of like the student welcomer and, um, Anyways, but uh, I led a beating group and my skills definitely improved. I wasn't snapping needles anymore, but I still wasn't good. I think if I had practiced it, it would be, you know, I'd be a bit better. But it's it's never been um, something that I have the patience for. So I do commend everyone who is really um, good at beating or even just wants to do it at all. Like it's a beautiful expression of our culture and um, you can do so many amazing things with it. Quill work is obviously um, different. It uses porcupine quills instead of beads and birch bark instead of leather, I'd say. So it's, I guess you're stitching the uh, quills into the birch bark, which is kind of similar to beadwork because you're stitching the bead into leather or whatever backing belt you're using. So there are similarities for sure, but I find the whole process just uh, a little bit more calming for me when I do quill work. I mean, way more calming, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. And uh, just the process of, I guess, gathering uh, the supplies and making the supplies is much different because I can't, I think I could probably go to iBead or some store that sells quills but I haven't found a place that sells them in the quantity I need or the size that I need or the color that I even want. And I also find that whole process very fun to do. So taking the porcupine, plucking the quills, cleaning the quills, dyeing them. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, you really need to start from scratch with quill work and um, the, the supplies aren't super readily available. They all come from nature. So yeah, it's it is a different process and it for me anyways, I've found quill work to be definitely more enjoyable than beading. Not to say that I won't try beading again, but <laughs> mm. <laughs> I have a couple more questions for you, Christine. Sure. Um as you're talking about like gathering the supplies, are there particular seasons where like that's the opportune time to to source all the materials? Yeah, my grandma um told me that Around the time when the strawberries are out, that's when you gather birch bark. That's when you gather sweetgrass. Mm -hmm. Summertime is not great, apparently, for gathering porcupine quills because the quills can be a little bit more oily. So you want to get them when it's not hot weather. But I know people who gather uh, birch bark in the winter. I think it's used for etching. It probably has maybe a... I'm, I'm actually not sure why they gather in the winter to do that particular artwork as opposed to the summer. but so that's what I've been taught anyways, is, is gathering probably around June-ish is when the strawberries are out. And you learn how to use quills and produce quill work like early on in childhood and then it's something that you sort of kept up or what did that process look like? Oh no, I um, I uh, I come from my grandma actually. She, she was the one who started probably when she was a child and she did it throughout her life. It was a great way for her to uh, bring in income, I guess, like she was raising 13 kids, doesn't necessarily have time for a job. So she, she definitely used that, um, sold beautiful boxes over the years, so many of them. And then when I was about 
I'd say I was around 27. My mom was struggling with cancer and I was struggling with chronic back pain. So we had, or I'd moved back to Sagamuk on and off throughout a couple of years, um, just to help, I guess, to help each other out, you know, to have that care for one another. And I needed a hobby and I needed something to do and I wanted to learn. And I knew my grandma, she was getting older and she didn't produce as many boxes, but it was a skill that she was willing to teach me and probably pretty excited about it. So I asked her to uh, teach me and she quickly like put together this box. I wish I could show you, it's in the other room. Um, And then gave it to me, it was like, there, there you go. And I was like, Oh, okay, like, where's my lesson? And that was my lesson. Basically, she was like, figure it out. <laughs> so I like examine the box. And like, I go back to her house and spend time with her and, you know, ask her questions and um, slowly figured out how she created this, this beautiful box that has a daffodil on it. Yeah, that summer I put together kits that I sold at the Wiki Powwow so other people could learn how to make a quill box. It didn't sell so well, but I I don't think my advertising was very good. (laughs) But yeah, uh, after that, yeah, like the time and effort that my mom, my grandma and I put into it was a beautiful time. I really, really enjoyed that time with them learning and um, uh, like learning a new skill and learning they were just like a wealth of knowledge and they were just like spewing things at me that like, I wish I was more like spongier to, you know, have retained more of it. But uh, I, I kind of put that to rest and I pursued other things and only got back to quill work uh, about a year and a half ago when my mom passed away. I had found all of the stuff that we had made together, um, all of the birch bark that we had cut together, all of the quills that we had cleaned and dyed together. And I was just like, why am I not doing anything with this? I need to, I need to start again. So I did one piece just to see if I like still enjoyed doing it. And I, and I was like, wow, I don't know why I ever stopped doing this. It is the most calming activity. It just gives me so much fulfillment and so much joy. So after that, I dedicated my next 13 to 15 pieces uh, to my mom and put together an art show in honor of her memory. That's really beautiful. A couple of my friends, a lot of my family bought the pieces so I can still see them and I can still remember her and all the wonderful lessons and all the time we spent together through the quill work that I did. Thank you so much, Christine. It's so incredible and and important to think about how objects themselves become carriers of so many stories. And when we're thinking about like producing stories that are close to us, but also resonate with others, like... Yeah, it's phenomenal. I'm really excited to see what your next show is going to look like. Do you want to share your handle, Christine, um, on Instagram where you show people the process and also pieces of work that are up? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, christine.quills. Awesome. Yeah. Benny, let's go back. Oh. Let's go back to... <laughs> I don't have a handle or any of these, like, fancy social things these online internet tick tock media <laughs> things that you need to be <laughs> noticeable and visible online so the question you were asking is how i came to to bead yeah and like you know what does beading mean for you like what is oh. it what kind of knowledge are you 
linking yourself to what genealogies are you tethered to as you produce the works that you have and that you are. Oh my goodness. Beading means the world to me. You know, when I first started beading, I approached it in a way that was, I think, really unhealthy. I approached it in the way that up until that point, I had approached everything in my life, which was really as a means to an end. I saw these, you know, Métis people are known historically as being pretty fancy. We adorned ourselves historically in floral beadwork. We were known by many groups as the flower beadwork people because we we loved to adorn ourselves in this floral beadwork. And I thought it would be pretty fantastic to be able to have some of these pieces for myself. So I decided that I would, you know, pick up beading and it would kind of be a one, two, three type thing. And I asked people that knew how to bead to teach me. And I just had such a rough go of it in the sense that I was so hypercritical of everything that I did. I ended up never finishing anything and I put it down for a number of years. And then it was in 2012 when I was going through an extremely difficult time in my life when beadwork finally came back into my life in a different way and um, really took on a whole new meaning for me. In, in 2012, I guess you could say that I was in an incredibly dark place and I began a program uh, to support my mental health at Wabano, the, the Wabano Aboriginal Health Center in Ottawa. And one of the programs that I was a part of at the time was uh, a beadwork circle that took place every Friday night. And the purpose of the circle, the way it functioned was we would bring in a project that we were working on and we would engage in a sharing circle. And the, the point of having a project to work on was so that while the, the eagle feather was going around, people were more comfortable being emotionally vulnerable and sharing the parts of their story that they felt they needed to share at that time. And so I started that program and decided on the first night of the program that I was going to go big or go home. I decided I was going to start a vest. <laughs> I had never booted anything large, anything grand in my life before, but I decided as I always do that I wanted to go big or go home. So I decided that um, I would be this grand floral vest <laughs> and the people in the program told me that if i approached it the way i had approached it in the past i would likely give up and that i needed to focus on the process and a few weeks after i began the program i flew to uh back to batosh days in batosh saskatchewan which is a metis festival where Métis from all, all over the homeland come together for cultural activities. And I was sitting at a picnic table with some Métis youth when Greg Schofield and Sherry Farrell Reset came and sat at the picnic table. And Greg Schofield is a Métis poet and a very, very well-known Métis beater. And he sat down and he saw me kind of fumbling with one of these little beadwork kits that had been given out. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm, I'm beating. And uh, he said, well, no, but I mean, what are you doing with your thumb? And I said, well, well, I don't know. I'm 
I'm beading. You can't bead without knowing what you're doing with your thumb. And I was like, I felt like it was a riddle, right? He ended up giving me and everybody at the table this lesson that lasted for about 30 minutes on how you utilize your thumb <laughs> when you bead and how you can't possibly bead without knowing how to utilize your thumb or you're essentially just a monkey with a string trying to like do the thing. Those are not his words. That information I brought back with me to this program at Wabano. And I really kind of immersed myself in the project of this vest. And I started to um, ask the folks um, in my community who were well-known for beading what some of the teachings were about, you know, the process of creating pieces of beadwork and came to understand that that they're, it's, a, it's a deeply spiritual process. And... You know, the way that I was taught, each piece that you create carries spirit. And I was taught, you know, never engage in the process of making beadwork when you're not in a good space, when you're not in a healthy state of mind. And the reason for that is if you ever gift that item to somebody, that item carries that energy that you imparted to it while you were making it. I take the process of creating beadwork very seriously. And I also, over the course of the two years that it took me to bead that vest, which is the vest that I wear at Carlton. If you ever see me wear that vest at Carlton, that, that vest carries that story of my healing journey from, from darkness to light, from, from illness to wellness. By the time I was finished that vest, I was healthy again. It took me that long. It took me, it took me about two years to find my way out of that darkness. But part of that process was completing that vest and recognizing that, you know, just like if you've ever seen Métis beadwork, one of the things that is distinctive about Métis beadwork is the white vines. You'll see the vines that connect the, the flowers. Some people call them doohickeys. Some people call them mouse tracks because if you look at the way uh, the sticks come off the vine, it kind of looks like uh, the way mice leave tracks when they run between the bush. But when I look at that white line, it reminds me of a life, your life path. When you come in the eastern doorway and you leave through the western doorway and you're walking, you're walking along that life path, you, you take all kinds of, you know, you, you leave that center path again and again and again, you know, but you always come back. You always make your way back to that path that you're supposed to be following. And I think there's there's so many teachings that are held within one piece of beadwork from the very from the very first bead that you set down at the center of a flower. I was taught that that bead represents spirit. If you look at the beads that come directly around that bead, there's seven. There's enough there's room for exactly seven beads after that initial bead and those seven beads represent those seven sacred teachings. I once I once called them the grandfather teachings. And I got in a lot of trouble for doing that. I was told, what did you think the grandmothers were doing? <laughs> Just hanging out while the grandfathers were <laughs> sitting around coming up with all these great teachings. The grandmothers were just chilling. <laughs> they said, don't come around here and talk about grandfather teachings. <gasps> those are the sacred teachings and the grandmothers own half of that circle. So those, are, those, those, those sacred teachings belong to everybody. And that spirit bead, you know, we're taught that when we when we create beadwork, 
we have to include that spirit bead and the, the teaching behind that spirit bead is that we have to be humble and walk with humility because nothing is perfect. There's not one of us is perfect and creation is imperfect and beauty is imperfection. And if you get caught up in the minutia and the small details of things, you'll never reach the, the completion or the fruition of a project. And you'll never get to stand back and look at all that you've accomplished. I love that. But I don't have a hashtag. <laughs> you don't need one. <laughs> I was just going to say that's what I, what Benny had said about there's beauty in, in imperfection. That's one thing I really have enjoyed about quill work is there's so much imperfection in, in the bark itself. Like it's, it's a living thing. And so you can't really, um, you can't really change what's, what it's gonna, what it's gonna look like. And sometimes when you do a design, you have to, you have to change it. You have to alter it to get around. There's little like lines in the bark. You can't put your quill on those. Otherwise it'll split the whole thing. So it's, um, it's kind of an art form that is, is, uh, I really embrace the the imperfections that come out of it and it's not always it doesn't always go to plan and I do have to make adjustments along the way and uh yeah anyways and it's a learning process every time I come up with something and it's like maybe not the way I saw it coming out or as I'm doing it I'm like oof this is not as beautiful as I thought it was going to be once it's all done I love it I love I love seeing my mistakes. I love seeing the the imperfections in in the birchbrook. I love, I love all of that. So I do believe in that. Uh, what Benny had said for yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And like, frankly, I did actually learn something about myself through your teaching. So thank you for that, Miigwech for that. That's that's beautiful. Um, uh, I do want to just like talk about something and maybe it could be a segue into something else, maybe whatever, um, whatever, <laughs> wherever the conversation leads us, but it's not really like a rebuttal to what Benny is saying, but it's more of something that just, I thought of, um, and, <laughs> and feelings that came up just from seeing, from seeing memes on like Instagram and Facebook. So uh, I guess I'll start with the meme. Somebody who I look up very very much too in I guess the indigenous community in Ontario I'll say um you know and who is also like kind of a queer mentor for me posted this meme that said it's that kid pointing in like a yellow shirt pointing at something and it's like you know what I'm gonna say it like and the meme was like you know beating around a little gem with like two lines of beadwork or whatever, like making like really like beginner style earrings or something is like, is not beadwork or something like that. And it just like kind of highlighted the fact that this person didn't believe that, you know, really beginner beadwork, you know, said you see a lot of these like, uh, accounts on Instagram that, you know, they buy what are called cabochons, like centers, you know, you glue it down on the felt and you do like maybe a couple lines of beadwork, a little bit of banding, and then you put an earring fixing on it. Um, that's, that style's really, really popular. And, you know, it's, it's something that I see a lot of beginner bead workers start out with. 
but I got, oh my God, I got so angry at this person because it was like, I, I really thought you felt differently about, <laughs> you know, that because not everyone comes to, you know, when in their beating journey, not everyone has access to say these really beautiful and powerful teachings that Benny carries, you know, not everyone has access to say, go to Wabano or the friendship center in their community, or even their relatives, you know, there's, you know, so many kids in care that, you know, age out and they don't know, you know what I mean? Like there's just, there's so many different stories and pathways that you know indigenous youth have and you know even beaters say who start later on in life you know and it's just these things are accessible you can look them up there's million not maybe not millions but there's so many tutorials on youtube like pinterest and like beadworker groups on facebook and things like that it's like not everyone has access to this just like not everyone has access to their culture or their teachings or ceremony and you know it just it really hurt me because it's like they are trying you know I, I was really fortunate to learn my first time um you know with with a native with my cousin you know I grew up with her you know her mom is my auntie even though we're not technically related um you know and like she taught me how to beat a floral and that was really important but later on, I'm like, okay, well, I don't, I don't have her on Facebook. She doesn't have Facebook. What am I going to do? And I looked on Pinterest and I learned how to do like peyote and just like the simple stitching of an earring. And it was just like, you know, I was, I was insulted by that meme. <laughs> well, I, I think I just want to say, I want to respond to that too, because I, one of the things that I wanted to share and one of the things that I was thinking about while I was listening to both of you share is I was reflecting on when I when I first began to bead quite a bit. I'm a very slow beater. I'm I mean, I'm, maybe I'm a remedial beater. Like I'm very very slow. And um, some people can whip stuff up. It takes me so long. Um, I tack down every bead. It's a very intentional process. Yeah. But I remember the anger I used to feel when people would see what I had beaded and the first question, and it would often come from non-Indigenous people who would see my beadwork. The question they would ask is, did you learn that from your mother? Mm. The, I would get so angry at that question. And it took me a long time to understand why I would immediately become so enraged at that question. And I now know it's because uh, of this assumption this this lack of understanding that my mom and and my grandmother didn't have the luxury of being able to pass down our traditions and being able to transmit that culture because they were busy surviving mm -hmm. they were busy ensuring that you know i wasn't taken from her arms at the saint boniface hospital when the social workers were sent in they were busy doing all of these other things and they yeah. couldn't they didn't they weren't able to do that and it would make me so mad and i would feel so ashamed that i hadn't learned beadwork that that hadn't been passed down from generation to generation in my family as it had been in other people's family and i would be angry that people didn't realize yeah that that was a presumptive question to ask and i think that points to what you're putting your finger on Lar larissa that 
it is still a privilege for many for many of us in indigenous communities to know where we come from, to have heard our creation stories, to attend ceremony, to be comfortable and accepted and part of a community, to all of these different pieces are still, that's still privilege. Yeah. We're still, we're still fighting for the day when that is not a privilege anymore, when that is just normal. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's like, you know, just that, even just that process, like I'm a huge believer in blood memory and that, you know, we carry, like, it's like, I don't speak, oh, well, maybe not a lick of Ojibwe, but like, I, I don't speak a lot of Ojibwe, but I can, I can read through a whole page out loud, you know, not knowing what I'm saying, but it's like, you know, it's there. So even just the act of, you know, just like tacking down the beads or just playing with them or whatever, I believe that you're still connecting like to your ancestors and, you know, to your culture, like you're still enacting something that connects you to who you are and, you know, what, I guess you're, you're trying to reach out to something and it just, yeah, just like thinking of that meme, it was just like that, that's like really hurtful. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's just, it it's absolutely a privilege and yeah. Because <laughs> like I, you know, my mother, you know, she was a bead worker, and you know, she, even the thing like it came came to her in dreams. Like she saw these really beautiful green moccasins that she beaded, and it's not that she didn't teach me, but it was like it was we never really just like sat down over a prolonged period of time or whatever. It was just like yeah, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like yeah, I really yeah, agree with what you're saying. <laughs> I was just going to say, I totally agree too. like, in terms of things being passed down from your mom, my mom was a self-proclaimed non-artistic person at all. She would always say that she's like, no, I don't have an artistic bone in my body. And I, I would look at her and be like, you make quilts, you, you do all these artistic things. Like, how is that not artistic? But I think, yeah, like in terms of other priorities that she had in her life for survival, you know, like coming to Ottawa, starting a life here, getting a job, raising a child. Like, it's not like she had a ton of time to focus on other art forms or even that desire. Like maybe that desire wasn't there because it wasn't something that was like fully encouraged. So the fact that I get to practice this quill work and uh, that my grandma was still around to teach me um, when I was yeah. finally interested, even though she's 92 now, you know, like that, I'm just so happy to have been able to, to have gotten that um, time to spend with them learning. And um, yeah, it is a privilege for yeah. sure. Larissa, you bring up such a beautiful and important point, right? Like the assumptions and the the sort of uh, erasure where knowledge like through the lineage also gets disrupted because of a series of external factors, right? So survival drives, but also the stories that like each of you are sharing, they themselves are these beautiful pockets of archives that exist in the intangible, but inform how you navigate and negotiate your own identities and your own sort of linkages to community and to self, right? And I think that's so so like important and necessary to center like where I think in more like normative or mainstream conversations around stories stories become something that are like on a hierarchy as if stories themselves aren't living knowledge and so that like when you bridge in practice to produce something that is also a continuity of living knowledge coming out just in a different form yeah I want to thank each and every one of you for spending some time with me today and just 
diving right on deep and sharing your process, practice, and I'm really excited to like see. I know Benny, you're you're working on a new piece um, that like hopefully we'll get to see the grand reveal of.、Um, you know, I'm looking forward to each and every one of your、um, like projects that are up and coming and. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Like this has been such a joy.、Um, yeah, I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to see everyone's faces finally. Everyone's <laughs> <laughs> everybody's face. Get to laugh with people. Oh God.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tackling at powwows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To be continued. A Stonecrop Symposium podcast is produced by Finn Santran and Anna Shahak. Special thanks to today's speakers Benny Michaud, Christine Toulouse, and Larissa Derosier. The music is composed by Zenman on Pixabay. The podcast is part of Carleton University Art Gallery's virtual Stonecrop Symposium. The symposium is organized in conjunction with the exhibition "To Be Continued: Troubling the Queer Archive," curated by Anna Shahak and Kara Tierney, and presented at the gallery September 2020 to May 2021. The exhibition and podcast expands conversations around local queer histories and futures. We're grateful for the support of Carleton University, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Stonecrop Foundation for the Arts. The Stonecrop Foundation promotes education in the visual arts and fosters the public's appreciation of the visual arts. Find out more about the Stonecrop Symposium by visiting qag.ca. That's c u a g.ca.